Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Greetings, comrades. Sorry that this episode is a bit shorter than usual, and it's actually only half scripted. But uh, <clears throat> I was really ill for a while, and I couldn't work. I got tonsillitis, or something we call that angina. You know, that stuff that your throat gets really sore, and uh, you get an infection there. And I still have that, by the way, so talking hurts for me physically. But don't let that worry you. Let's go down to the tasty stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry for this episode. I am trying my best here while in pain while doing this and I'm ill. But this is a serious episode and I still can't get to everything I wanted to in this one. For one, I wanted to talk about the five-year plans, but I understood that really this will go into the Stalin's episodes because I will now... In the next Stalin episode, skip over a bunch of years. Uh, but yeah, uh, I will make sure that everyone's properly entertained. And there are some things that I wanted to talk about in this episode. And some of them are political in nature. And that's kind of weird because, um, because even though this started out as a mostly historical and personal experience episode, the recent events in Russia made me do this comparison, really. For one, I have understood why everything has been peaceful for me here lately. Well, more peaceful than usual, I still get the occasional troll, but it is totally not like it used to be a while ago. See, uh, I've figured out that it's because my podcast is mainly for Western audiences, and my listenership in Russia and in our region in general is very tiny. Which is understandable, as you know, people who lived here know what happened in the Soviet Union for most part, and they know what's going on. So I'm not dangerous, as the massive amount of opposition YouTube channels, which, you know, Russia doesn't really have podcasts, uh, like, I'm not as dangerous as they are, because they speak in Russian, and people in Russia might listen to them, or watch them, and start revolting. So they focused their attention to Navalny and Realny journalism and other things like that. And trust me, throughout this episode you'll understand why it is much more important for Putin's government to control those guys, who 
speak and produce their content rationally than me. Because in this episode of Sovconomics, I will continue to explain the similarities between what was going on in the Soviet Union and modern-day Russia. And I will also, at the end, compare Russia to Latvia at this this point here. But yeah, this is uh, this is going to be some impromptu stuff going on here, at least for, for a part of it. So uh, I apologize previously with this. I hope you won't mind that. For starters, you know, I watched some Western-made documentaries about Russia. You know, about the opposition candidates and leaders and about how Putin got to power and about what are the issues there. And I do have to find, and I do have to say that I find them quite silly myself. You see, there is a saying in Russia, quote, What's good for a Russian would be death for a German. And whatever these documentaries depict, might seem shocking to Western audiences, uh, but it all seems very tame and normal over here in Eastern Europe, and especially in Russia. See, complaining about drunk driving of Guzduma deputies, especially when in Sweden, a minister actually resigned because she was just hitting the legal limit of 0.2 promils of alcohol in her system. Yeah, nothing like that would happen in Russia. See, recently in Rosnet, which we, which is how we call the Russian internets, a video was published where a completely drunk Russian Gosduma deputy was driving a car, and he just didn't like some bikers with those GoPro cams who were like just driving on the road and not messing with anything, so he crashed those bikers and started yelling at them and started trying to beat them up. At the end, those bikers beat the Russian Guzdemir deputy up, and it all ended up with a huge scandal or everything, but the Guzdemir deputy who started the whole thing didn't get into trouble, but those bikers were actually fined, even though they were the victims in this case, because they were attacked first, and they just, you know, pushed the guy aside, they didn't know he was a deputy. But uh, all of this is normal. Corruption? Yeah, everybody knows about that too. I mean, the latest news in Russia is that a um, a clerk who works in in Saint Petersburg, he he has this very expensive car, a Mercedes Benz, and he kind of knocked down a six year old child. Okay, and um, he knocked down the six year old child and just drove away from whatever happened there. Yeah, like from from the place where this happened, he didn't even get the child to the hospital. And later in the courts, because this made it to the courts, which was surprising for everyone already, when this made it to the courts, uh, the courts just uh, decided that oh well, uh, the six-year-old kid must be totally drunk. Uh, yes. Uh, long story short, they falsified. Uh, they actually took blood from the six-year-old kid. They falsified the evidence and made sure that everyone would know that the six-year-old kid had 3.8 promils of alcohol in his system while he was driving a bike. Can you imagine the six-year-old 3.8 promils of alcohol? 3.8. This is justice in Russia. And see, this is the point here. I want to talk about Soviet injustices, but honestly, modern-day Russia is 
beating them at this point. Because, you know, I wanted to talk about how ridiculous all the system was in the Soviet Union. But now I have to use the Soviet system as, like, the good example. Because it was actually better than what's going on in Russia. And I'll also compare this to the situation in Latvia now. And it's weird. But, you know, I'm ill. My head is full, like, it feels like there's a fog in my brain. So I can do this now. Now, the thing is, what these documentaries don't really grasp or show to people, it is the reality of things and how everyday people live, and how they used to live. For example, you know, recently, Medvedev, who is again now the Prime Minister of Russia, was visiting the occupied Crimea, and there there are pensioners who receive very, very tiny pensions, retirement pensions from the state. And uh, he made a statement which basically became a meme in the Runet, uh, Runet services. It was, <clears throat> well, we have no money, but you hold on. Good luck to you and good health to you as well. Remember this sentiment, because uh, we will get back to this. Cause, um... See, <laughs> I made these mini-series because I have been called Russophobic and paid by the CIA and all sorts of nasty things, and, um, I just want to show you here how, um, how actually I care about the Russian people. They deserve better. And I want to make, and I want to make a statement here, okay? I mean, the Russian government is spending money to influence our elections and everything, and, uh, in Russian constitution it's written that, you know, all the natural resources belong to the people, so, you know, all the oil extraction companies have to be like, owned by the state and go to the country budget, which pays, which pays basically all the social welfare and stuff, but it's getting stolen. I'm not here to hate on Russians. I don't hate Russians. And some people said that I do. And the uh, Soviet economy was the same thing. What's going on right now in Russia is basically Soviet economy Except with money, but it's the same KGB people there. And I know that I'm rambling, okay? Uh, I have a 38 degree Celsius temperature right now, and uh, this is sort of a pain to bring out for me. Because someone has to, okay? Uh, people in the West think that everyone in Russia is just just doing things the usual way, but it's not true. It's not true. Most of the information that I've gotten is from opposition channels and also, from the official channels, just that they don't care anymore. And the people of Russia are poor. Like, really poor. And in some ways, actually poorer than in the Soviet Union. I don't want to speak about all this in this in this episode, because in the last episode, I compared the leaders of the Soviet Union with the leaders of modern-day Russia. So, let's let's discuss some comparisons of Soviet Union and Russia once again. Because, you know, like I mentioned just now, last time you heard about the glorious leaders of both countries. But today, it's time for the people. Now, note that uh, as I have done an episode on everyday life already, I will not repeat myself here. But I will cover some things that I haven't said about about everyday life in that episode before. But you please, please do check it out and... uh, and so, yeah, I'll cover some things that I haven't said in that episode before, and uh, please don't hate me. This is one of those honest episodes in the spirits of the early episodes. I I hope you won't mind. But those things that I'll cover, 
that important. So let's get on to it. And uh, one of the more important things that I want to cover here is um, communal flats. In the larger cities of the Soviet Union, more than half of the inhabitants lived in such flats. In the Soviet era, they were defined as, quote, an apartment with multiple rooms that is shared by two or more families or inhabitants who are not related. See, as after the industrialization in the Soviet Union, cities started to grow exponentially, and not even counting the fact that the USSR's military forces, especially officers, also had to live somewhere, and that after university you would just be sent somewhere at random in the whole Soviet Union to live and work, and you had to be assigned a place, this, this happened. And especially in the case of the Baltic states, after the Soviet occupation, Due to the massive Russification efforts of the government, a ton of people from all over the Union were just resettled here. This, combined with the military that arrived in these parts, was the main reason for such communal flats over here in the Baltics. While in Russian, Ukrainian and other early USSR territories, uh, the reason was mostly urbanization. And, you know, as the living space was extremely limited for all of these people, The government just decided to take space away from people and put folks in communal flats, stuffing multiple families in a single flat. This was invented as a temporary anti-crisis measure, but nothing was as permanent in the Soviet Union as temporary measures. See, how many families lived in such apartments was determined by the amount of rooms available. The average was one room per family, which led to three or more families sharing the same apartment. The communal parts, kitchen, bathroom, toilet, the corridors, that was all shared. There were organized schedules about when each family would use the bathroom or kitchen, for example, and rules about using them. And this often led to the queues forming in front of the bathrooms in the mornings, as everyone had to go to work, obviously. People also scheduled how and who cleaned up the common places of in use in the single apartment, and they had to make like their own posts and everything. And you know, we will we will have pictures about this. Now, depending on the size of the kitchen, for example, there could be multiple stoves in the kitchen. The same rules applied for the fridges. In case of stoves, As those were expensive, often in the smaller apartments, uh, or not-so-rich ones, people shared one stove, and each family got assigned their own rings on the stove. Like, you know, if you had a two-room apartment, and two families were living, like, one in each room, and you had a single stove, then, you know, the usual stove has four rings on it, so each family had two. Uh, Fridges, if the relationships weren't too friendly and the kitchen was small, would also be kept in, like, separate rooms, because, you know, someone might steal stuff from your fridge. Every kitchen also had to have more than one table where the families could work on making food. Obviously, multiple sets of dishes, pots, kettles, and other supplies were kept separately. Often, in the evenings, kitchens were stuffed full with people cooking with their families with no room to move around. And that was also the place where people started arguing the most. Everyone ate in their respective rooms, well, obviously. Often, people had either separate doorbells in the front door assigned for each room, or in the cases where this could not be done, there often was a small plaque on the door, 
ring once for Petrov's in room one, ring twice for Zarin's in room two, or ring thrice for Stepanov's in room three. And again, pictures of this will be provided. And uh majority of the people living in large cities in the Soviet Union lived in such apartments. And now imagine this this episode, and let's use me analysis as an example. Let's presume that we are both young people just out of the university, and we have each been sent to Riga, or Moscow, or whatever, from some place to live and work. We each have been assigned a room in such a communal flat. But then we meet, fall in love, and want to get married. Well, what to do? Sure, I can move into Alice, or she can move in my place, but building a family in such a flat is ridiculously awkward. Well, what to do? You can't sell your apartment or your room because it belongs to the state. The state, technically, builds apartments and hands them out for free, for each married couple and family that is why it's building the new housing. But the cute get-on one can be up to 10 years long, and that is why people are living in the communal flats in the first place. And this process was made even more difficult by the fact that you didn't even get in the queue if you already had, quote, enough space to live already. And by enough space, they meant four square meters per person, dividing the total space of the apartment by the amount of people living there. The uh, total space, including the communal spaces like kitchen, bathroom and everything else, not just the size of your room. So, if your communal apartment had a large kitchen, or if you were married without kids and your room happened to be close to 8 square meters, you wouldn't even get in the line for this apartment. So, what you had to do was, officially, you have to get a kid, then you wait 10 years in line. And then maybe, just maybe you'll get your own apartment if the Soviet state doesn't send more people to your republic as they always got the priorities. Now, of course, if you knew the right people in the right places, then such a trade could happen faster, obviously, or if you were a party member. Or, and this was typical of the Soviet policies, in the Baltics, if you were a Russian, resettled here by the government. So, you know, the Soviet workers who were sent here, the government, so the government would have support, got their own, often multiple room apartments for their families, before the local population, as they were considered... a priority social group. Now, the higher-ups, as you heard in the previous episode, obviously had spacious apartments and dachas, so this didn't concern them at all, so I won't even mention them here. Uh, yeah, uh, these people, like in this uh, example, we, like me and Alice, in this case, would be also able to trade our rooms with another family who are lucky enough to have their own flat. Uh, obviously, uh, one room flat only for two rooms in two communal apartments. This could happen if someone got divorced or wanted to live separately from the grandparents or something. And yes, when I talk about families here, then the usual setup including grandparents too. All in the same room. You, your wife, your parents, and your kids. All in the same room. In this case, you might want to trade your one-room flat for two communal rooms. But obviously, this is extremely tedious and a long process involving black market dealings and tons and tons of paperwork. Now, I remember my spending my childhood in one of these apartments as well, as the problem, well, obviously wasn't solved instantly when the Soviet Union fell. So, up to 1994, we lived in a three-room flat, and my family had two rooms, one for my mom and dad, and one for grandma, and one for Aunt Anna, 
as she was introduced to me. I remember her since I was four, and she's one of my earliest memories. She died when I was six. Before that, as I remember from the stuff told me by my mom, they lived together with a nurse from Kazan and her husband from our own Latgala region. We were considered lucky because two of our three rooms were connected, and as mom's grandma was a Holocaust survivor, our family were assigned two rooms in the apartment so that mom's mom's grandmother could have her own room. And it also wasn't taken away by the state and left to our family in 1980 when she passed away. The catch was, before the war, this apartment was our apartment. Yeah, this was our own apartment, our great three-room apartment with you know, stuff. But it got nationalized under the Soviet occupation, and then the mighty state awarded our own family with not one, but two rooms in our own apartment, just taking one away. Generosity, Soviet style, for half of my family suffering under the Nazi occupation and being shot, and other half of my family suffering under the Soviets during the Stalinist era. So for all of our suffering in our own apartment, we get we got to keep two rooms instead of instead of just one. Awesome. But back to my own memories. This aunt Anna turns out because uh, I read, you know, uh, my mom, my mom just just left left me uh, her diaries, and uh, she was a cousin of my mom's grandmother. She was living alone in a single-room apartment with no central heating, and she was very old and had dementia. But she was a relative, even though a very distant one. So our family managed to trade in her apartment to the family that lived in our apartment for the single-room apartment that, you know, Aunt Anna had. It wasn't much, as we had to take care of her. Well, my parents did, and my grandparents too. But it was better than totally random people who were just living in our own apartment. Then, her dementia got far, far worse over time, and so she was moved to a sanitary in 1984 and died a year later. And, you know, only then we could start the process of, you know, reprivatizing our pre-war apartment back to our family from the state. And, you know, it was a really difficult process due to corruption, incompetence, and uh, various other problems of the 90s, which I have spoken about in detail and will continue to do so in the future, but right now it hurts to speak, so I'll just leave it as is. I think it's kind of time for a break now, and uh, yeah, have a listen what Alice has to say, and we will be back with Modern Day Russia. Hi guys, this is Alice. We would like to thank all of our listeners, and especially all of those who have become our patrons. We are planning a little Christmas gift to all our patrons, so keep your eyes open. If you would like to support us and become a patron, and receive all sorts of goodies, including monthly book readings, then you can become our patron at patreon.com slash border. We finally figured out how we're going to sell out our unique vintage and non-purchasable, non-found-on-the-internet pack of Soviet cigarettes. This is a fundraiser of sorts, but these things are apparently very valued by the collectors, and we don't have any access to collectors, so even if you don't smoke and don't care about supporting us, you'll probably make a profit in the US, as these cigarettes are extremely rare and cannot be bought anywhere else. So first, the auction is going to start on the 15th of September. It's our wedding anniversary, and the auction will be going on until the 18th, which is Monday. Secondly, the Astro Pack of Cigarettes, 
full with 20 Soviet cigarettes made in 1981 will be listed as Soviet vintage souvenirs, as eBay does not allow the sale of tobacco. But we're going to do it Soviet style. So we're posting an empty pack of cigarettes and listing it as collectibles only. And such, but don't worry. You'll get a full pack because... That is how it is done in the Soviet Union. Please don't tell eBay. And yes, it'll happen on eBay. Shipping will be free worldwide, it will be an auction, the minimum price will be 20 euros, and you'll have from Friday to Monday to obtain one of the rarest pack of Soviet cigarettes out there. Full pack. We'll post a link on our Facebook page and on our Twitter on the 15th of September. So if you're interested in getting something truly unique and valuable and supporting our show, please do follow us there. And on the 15th, there will be a link with all the information. Also, we would like to thank Patrick for sending us our own Kami Tears books, the ones that can be purchased via our homepage. They're shipped from and made in the USA with our designs, and we actually don't have them. But a very nice listener of ours who visited us brought us two of our own mugs, and they're simply amazing. And if you want some, you can go to our webpage, theeasternwater.lv, and there's a link on the right side of the page. You might want to scroll down a bit if you're on mobile devices. any rate, thank you. And please, don't forget about our very unique collectible rare soviet cigarette auction that will happen on the 15th through the 18th and whomever gets it in the end we hope you'll enjoy it and now back to the here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. So, back to modern-day Russia. And this time, this time, which is important, my source is Rasiskaya Gazeta, which is the official state newspaper of the Russian Federation. It's called, well, literally, the Russian newspaper. This, that is, that is the place where all the new bills are published and official documents of the state. And all these things only get real power after being published, you know, there. Because uh, over here in Latvia, have the same thing. We have one such newspaper as well. It's called Latvia's Vesnesis, and it's super boring. Well, obviously, because, you know, a state has to have that official newspaper. And, uh, I don't know, in Latvia, and, uh, and I think in Lithuania and Estonia too, and in Russia, laws only become, like, bills only become laws after the president ratifies them. And then they have to be published in this official state newspaper. So, you know, everyone can read that, but nobody does. So, you know, it's, it's not that interesting. But, but, in Russia, everything is different. Because Rasiskaya Gazeta, 
is much more entertaining. See, that is the only state newspaper that I know that also has news reports and interviews with deputies, ministers, and other high-ranking people. And these guys also run comments on the documents published. So, for those of you who like to comment that my sources are biased and they only pick the opposition views, mm, which are all obviously lies funded by Gosdep, as the Russians called the United States State Department, I, I don't know which one, but uh, yeah, seriously, default in Russian is Gosdep. Uh, it is an abbreviation of State Department. Which one? Uh, I... Is is it is it the FBI or or is it uh, some sort of State Department of Security? I don't know, but Gosdep, the State Department of the United States, is the cause of all problems over here in Europe and over there in Russia, and they are all evil scumbags. Yeah, obviously. Anyhow, I get this uh, whole information from the Rosyska Gazette, which is the official newspaper. Therefore, it is fully funded officially by the state government. Now, remember, last time, like, I mentioned that the average salary in Russia is 25,000 rubles, or about 360 euros, or 433 dollars. That came from this newspaper. Also, the median salary, which better reflects the reality, is 15,000 rubles, which is about 216 euros, or 260 dollars. To explain to those who might not know the difference, average salary is the one which is just adding up all the salaries and the state and dividing them up by the working population, which is a number that really gets skewed by the insane income inequality in Russia and the super high salaries of uh, various high-ranking people. See, the median point, uh, median salary in this case, is this is an important number, is the one that is the exact middle point. In this case, it means that exactly 50% of the working population gets salaries worth $260 and lower, and exactly 50% gets salaries that are higher, which is actually more representative of the average than the average or mean salary is. Therefore, the median, median statistics are more used in economics. And to add to this, do you know what the minimal salary, what the minimal salary is? They increased it by 20% in December last year, comrades. Great success. It's now 7,500 rubles. Yeah. That equates to 108 euros. Or 129 dollars. Now, I'll speak about the prices later on, but they don't differ that much. But, um... There are people in Russia who live on $129 a month. And you might say, well, yes, but how many people actually receive just this minimal salary? Well, thankfully, we have data on this. See, the vice premier, vice prime minister of the Russian Federation, Olga Golodets, in an interview for the official news agency Itartas in late 2016 stated, quote, Today in Russia we have 4.8 million people in Russian Federation working for the minimal salary. Out of those 1.8 million are those who get their salaries from the state. That means uh, 3 million people in Russia get their salaries, monthly salaries, from private-owned corporations and receive just 7,500 rubles per month. And 1.8 million 
And in this case, you know, these people who get salaries from the state, as it's Russia, those would be the teachers, nurses, firefighters, policemen, you know, the like. The guys who do public service jobs. Yeah, that's a bit crazy, isn't it? And the total amount of working people in Russia in 2016, but about this year, which we're talking about here, was 75.8 million. So that means that 6.3% of all the workers in Russia live on this minimal salary. So six out of every hundred people in Russia receive this. By the way, this minimal salary, it's also considered the poverty line. Oh, and um, so that I wouldn't touch just the salaries, the average retirement pension paid by the state is three uh, is 13,600 rubles, or 196 euros, or $235. How's that for a nice pension? You know, you get $235 for a month, and then you try to survive on that. Now, I will not look up the median one, but it's less than average, really. And uh, what is kind of really, really describing the whole situation is that, um, remember the quote that I said in the beginning, no money, but hold on, which Medvedev said? Yeah, Medvedev said that to a person who has 8,000 ruble pension, this is like 500 rubles above the minimum salary, which is like nothing, uh, and to a person who receives this in the occupied Crimea now, by the way. So, now that we know these numbers, you might think, oh, well, you know, price difference will make this all up. Oh, obviously, because, you know, if the salaries are so low, there might be some, you know, the prices must be as, as, as low as this. So, let's look at the Barton prices. Again, continuing from Rashiskaya Gazeta, because I love official government sources from Russia. This time from an article written the 23rd of August 2017. And I quote directly here. As Russian Gazeta was informed in one of the largest Moscow real estate agencies, the average monthly rent for a single-room flat in Moscow is 30,000 rubles. A two-room flat usually costs about 37.5 thousand rubles per month, and a three-room flat is 47,000 rubles. This is if you look at the economical class flats, which are the absolute majority, in the blockhouses built in the Soviet Union. Out of all the apartments rented in the capital, about 60% are in the price range of 25 to 40,000 rubles. For 25,000 rubles, you can rent a simple one-room flat in the fourth floor of a Khrushchevera five-floor building, 15 minutes away from the metro station Tsaritsina. And I googled that one up. I really did look where Tsaritsina metro station in Moscow is. And that is in the far southern outskirts of Moscow and, like, completely not in the center on the very border of Moscow in these Khrushchevara buildings. Because, ring on. In this case, you will get barely any furniture or appliances. So, uh, bring your own fridge and washing machine, you guys. But the apartment will have some renovation done, and the landowner won't ask you for a deposit, and will only want the rent for the month forward. Glory! Glory to party and Stalin! Yeah, something like that. As I mentioned just just before, 25,000 rubles is exactly the average Russian salary. And it is larger than the median one, which fifty which which is received by 50% of the population. Like, 50% of the population get the median salary, or less. Average salary is, like, by, I guess, 60-65% of population, like, they get the average, or less. 
So think about it. If you're single and you receive the average, not even the median salary, which would be like 50%, no, it's like more, more than half of the Russian people just simply cannot afford to rent anything even remotely decent in Moscow. Anything! Oh, and the rent, by the way, this price, does not include any other bills for water, electricity, no. Oh, and by the way, in St. Petersburg, the same stands valid, because for the matter, prices are similar. Those are the only cities where actually all the money of Russia is located, but, you know, the prices there are similar. Outside of those cities in the regions, yeah, sure, but in the regions, the salaries are way lower as well, and unemployment there is over 25%. So people are really, aren't really keen on moving there. Also, it would be it would be kind of correct, uh, it won't be correct for our discourse here to look at regions, really, as I live in Riga, which is our capital, and was a major city in the Soviet Union, and thus I think it's only fair that I compare it to the Russian capital, because, you know, that's honest. But think about it, okay? If you want a decent apartment, the very bare minimum of a decent apartment in Russia, you have to leave all of your average salary. That means if you if you want to live in Moscow, you have to earn an above average salary just to make ends meet and, you know, have actual food or anything else just besides your rent, besides any bills. Oh, by the way, and they, they blame Gosdep, they blame America for this, even though... uh. What most people might not understand is that the sanctions that the EU and the United States have imposed on Russia are only attributed to a select few of oligarchs. There's like a hundred or something, 180, some like something like that, a list of people which have their accounts frozen and they who can't move currencies and this involves some companies. But actually the average person in Russia is not touched by the sanctions at all. That's the biggest part. And obviously, the Putin is, Putin's government is using the sanctions as massive propaganda tool because, you know, the, the sanctions of the West are disturbing the oligarchs and the corrupt bastards from stealing from their people more. But, you know, they can, they can blame stuff. But yeah, I want to do a little comparison over here. See, with this podcast, plus some ads and some donations and, and Patreon, like, you know, with, with everything, when you, when you compare everything, I make close to the average, and not median, not median, which is important, Latvian salary, which is about 700 euros with taxes, when taxes are deducted. Because, uh, you know, w- with taxes it would be less. So, in, in the end, for, for the month to live on, I have 700 euros. It's about $800, I think. Now, I pay 210 euros for my rent, and that's including the bills. That's that's really low for a bunch of people. I don't know how it's elsewhere, because I'm comparing Riga to Moscow now. Now, now, just, just so you wouldn't think anything terrible about me, I have to give you some legal disclaimers. The issue is that, as you know, Alice is still studying and doesn't make any money right now. So we we just live on what we make from this podcast. And we have to eat, both of us. We have to feed our cat. We have to spend a lot on researching stuff and new books and materials for Alice's University. And we have to pay for hosting. And we have to buy earphones and upgrade our computer and technology. And we have to buy meds because we are both ill right now. 
And we have to send, like, pay for postage to the United States because we send souvenirs to our listeners. We also have to buy our souvenirs. And there are also random events. Basically, we can make our ends meet. We can make our ends meet and we will go on a cruise via Italian ferry to Sweden for a wedding anniversary. But, you know, that's about it. And, you know, we are planning on having a kid only when Alice finishes her university and starts working. And, you know, then we will be able to save some money and buy uh, a house in the countryside because they're, like, really cheap there. They cost about 5,000 euros. So it'll it'll be great. But uh, thankfully, we don't have any loans, but any emergency situations are not really easy for us. Okay. But uh, the thing about it, well, we, we can make ends meet from this podcast. Sometimes it's worse off in a few months, sometimes it's better, but it's not about me this time. It's just that I'm comparing this with the average salary of Russia, wasn't I not? See, if I was making this podcast link in Russia, well, obviously not in Moscow, of course, because Moscow is reserved for the rich, obviously, but let's say Nizhny Novgorod or Khabarovsk, you know, I would be considered upper middle class without much worries or anything. Oh, well, except censorship, raids by the police, disagreeing with Putin probably getting arrested and sitting in prison for 30 days for offending people in Russian government. You know, these things. Um, another nuisances. So, uh, can't really complain, but uh, I wanted to talk about this because there are a lot of people here in Latvia and in general Eastern Europe who think that we are all poor and we're terrible off. No, we're not. The people in Russia, well, they're screwed. And I'm sorry about this, but they're they're not very well off. And sometimes I don't even know. I thought I thought at one point that, you know, when I was comparing these salaries and comparing them to the Soviet era, I thought about the food prices. Because, um, as you know, in the Soviet era, food was, like, really cheap. But there was nothing in the stores. I mean, you could buy macaroni and kefir. And then you had to wait in extremely long lines to get, like, any sauce whatsoever. But uh, just people had the cash, which was useless, because you couldn't buy any food for it. Like I said, listen to my episode about Soviet Verde Life, and there's one upcoming too, but uh, but yeah, people didn't have quality food, they bought it from their relatives in countryside. But now, now I thought, you know, with these low salaries, food prices would be going down in Russia and would be, like, actually much cheaper than here. Well then, let's talk about that, shall we? So, there is this site, Cenometer which is also an official site, and it gives prices of the various foodstuffs throughout Russia. And I'll provide them in two currencies, rubles and euros, because uh, translating everything to dollars still would be weird. Just, you know, as you know, dollars slightly less than euros, so uh, the prices in euros and dollars are somewhat similar. And I will compare them to Latvia, where, by the way, according to statistics, we have some of the most expensive everyday foodstuffs in Europe, due to weird economics... And other reasons, as artificial bureau statistics tries to tell me. Anyhow, potatoes. In Russia, on average, they cost 28 rubles per kilogram, which is 0.4 euros. In Latvia, the same costs 0.38 euros per kilogram during summer. Pretty much equal, except ours are slightly cheaper. Meat, in this case pork, as the default meat of choice in these parts, costs 338 rubles per kilo, or or 4.89 euros. That is per kilogram of pork without bones. In Latvia, the same costs 
57 euros, which is 32 euro cents per kilo cheaper, which is quite noticeable. Cheese, cheese is 533 rubles per kilogram, which is 7.71 euros. Or in Latvia, it is 7.61 euros per kilogram, slightly cheaper here again. Now, there is also milk, which is 52 rubles per liter, which is 0.75 euros per liter. And that's a bit expensive here, uh, for us it's 0.85 euros per liter on average. Eggs. Eggs in Russia are 53 rubles per 10. Because over here they're sold not by the dozen, but you know, in packs of 10. And that is 0.76 euros. Well, these uh, these eggs are really, you know, more expensive here in Latvia, as over here they cost 1.48 euros per 10 eggs on average. Uh, sausage. You know, salami sausage, uh, half-dried sausage, you know, one of these smoked sausages. In Russia, they cost 322 rubles per kilogram, which is 4.66 euros per kilogram. And in us, in Latvia, it's 5.55 euros per kilogram on average. A bit a bit more expensive, like euro more expensive, which is a lot, but, you know, it, it, it can still be compared. Uh, oil. Uh, oil made from vegetables and plants. Uh, it costs 82 rubles per liter, which is 1.18 euros per liter in Russia. And you know, over here in our, our our country of Latvia, it costs 2.16 euros per liter. Again, like just like the eggs, it's almost twice the amount. But, you know, we also make uh, twice the uh, Russian average salary. And sugar, sugar is about the same thing. It's 47 rubles per kilo in Russia, or 0.68 euros per kilogram, or in Latvia, 1.12 euros per kilogram. But if you like, and these are just a few examples, but if you compare all these things, then you'll find out that there are things that are like about the same price level, the same purchasing power level, because, you know, if, if Russia has salaries which are twice lower than ours, then, you know, products should cost twice here if it would be equal. And some do, like oil, eggs, and sugar. And rice. And that's about it. Our pasta is cheaper, our meat is cheaper, our 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 cheese is cheaper. And I don't just know, if if you think about it, if a Russian cheese is uh is is more expensive in Russia than in Latvia, and we get twice the salary, that means what are are there people like actually eating cheese in Russia? Do they just afford cheese in Christmas or something? I don't know, because because um, this is where 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 the real real salt of the earth is. Because um, by this point, everyone blames Gosdep, the uh, State Department of the United States, for all the troubles in Russia. But the real troubles are just the government who steals from the people, like. In Russian constitution, it is written that, you know, all the natural resources belong to the people because, you know, they're natural resources and they found that they're found in Russia, so they should be managed by state companies, which is what they do. And the interesting part is that uh, still another similarity to the Soviet economy is the fact that most companies in Russia are state owned. There are very few small business companies going on there. Because uh, the Russian government tries to take control of all of them. That is why, you know, even though they technically live in a law-based uh, society with capital economics, there are very few small and medium businesses running the thing. 
most of the actual businesses are state-controlled. And I can understand that in the case of natural resources, because, you know, in their constitution, state resources are commonly owned by the people. But in reality, what happens is that uh, that the, the very, very people on top who actually don't run any businesses, they just sell it out and then steal for themselves. They run luxurious lives, but people in Russia live in utter destitute poverty. Like, and we don't live so well here in Eastern Europe, in Latvia. We're not the most richest country with the most, most like, genie index here or something, but, uh, when I understand that even I, who can, like, barely make ends meet, I, I live better than, than, than the Russians. Because of, of apartment prices and everything, because I spend, like, I have money to spend on, like, produce, and I can just uphold this podcast. That's crazy. Not just crazy. I'm going to leave you with this here. Well, we will get back to the Soviet economy later on, and uh, we will get to the five-year plans when we reach the Stalin uh, era of this once again. But next episode is going to be PDRP, and I'm going to have a nice interview, and it's going to be really fun. And I hope you listen to this, because it's going to be about European politics. But, um, but yeah, next Eastern border is going to be about Stalin. And I hope you'll like Stalin, because... Uh, I plan on skipping ahead on years because some of you people don't like the very Mike Duncan approach that I've taken on these things. So I'll I'll try to do better. But now now I'll go back to sleep because uh, I really don't feel that good. And I'm sorry if you didn't like this episode, but I did my best here. Also, thank you to Patrick who sent us our own uh, Eastern Border mugs, like the Comet Years ones. And uh, you should go to our link on our website, like on the right side, and, and buy some of those. They're made in America, and now these mugs are the most American thing in our home. And that's amazing. At any rate, uh, I hope this episode was enjoyable. I did my best here, because I'm terribly ill with a lot of temperature, and I can barely speak. But, you know, next one's going to be better. Next one's going to be about a report from Sweden, because we're going to Sweden, like we mentioned previously. Please send us the mail if you're Swedish. And uh, see you next time, tovarishi. Do svidanya. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.